Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good afternoon and welcome to the Royal Academy. My name is Sarah Sassanelli and I'm the assistant programmer here. I'm delighted to introduce today's lunchtime talk, Matisse's Faces, A Portrait is a Quarrel, with co-curator of Matisse in the studio, Ellen McBreen. Ellen McBreen is an art historian specializing in late 19th, early 20th century French art and visual culture. And she is the co-curator of Matisse in the studio and co-editor and author of the accompanying exhibition catalog. Her book, Matisse's Sculpture, The Pinup and the Primitive, was published by Yale University Press in 2014. And she is currently Associate Professor of Art History at Wheaton College in Massachusetts, USA. In this talk, Ellen McBreen examines a series of iconic portraits featured in the exhibition and highlights the role of portraiture in the artist's move toward abstraction. And without further ado, I will pass on to Ellen. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sarah. I should say straight away that despite the title of today's lecture, um, working uh, with everyone at the Royal Academy has been anything but a quarrel. Um, it's been a pleasure from beginning to end. And so thank you, Sarah, for um, that lovely introduction. Um, and to Kira and to everyone who's responsible for my being here, and in particular, um, my very generous co-curator, uh, Anne Dumas. So today we're gonna to talk about Matisse's portraits, um, portraits that created more than a few headaches for the artist. In 1916, when he was working on this portrait of a man by the name of Auguste Pellerin, he was obliged to start over on this second version that you're looking at now, because the margarine magnet found the first one to be much too daring. A portrait, Matisse concluded, is a quarrel. So our exhibition, Matisse in the Studio, includes, as many of you probably know, a gallery devoted to some of those quarrelsome portraits. We actually call that fourth section faces, since portrait is not entirely an accurate term for what Matisse is up to in that gallery, which is really a challenge to the expectations of the genre. Matisse's abstract goals as an artist meant that recreating a likeness was not really a priority as it is in traditional portraiture, like the Raphael that we're looking at the screen now. His relationships to his sitters was often rather unconventional. Some of them, like the Pellerin, were commissions, but Matisse often thought of his work uh, as portraits, even when his subjects were not sitters in the traditional sense. This Raphael actually happens to be the very last work Matisse uh, registered at the Louvre to copy from in 1904, Copying works from the Louvre was part of his very tradition-bound uh, education. He knew his art history very well. He made this copy of uh, Raphael's famously understated, gorgeous portrait of the diplomat and humanist Baldessari Castiglioni just before heading to Saint-Tropez for the summer, where with Signac, Matisse would make some of his first radical experiments with color, later known as Fauvism. So in traditional portraits like this Raphael, it is the details, the particular uh, physicality or shape of a nose, the curve of a lip, uh, the texture of a beard that capture what is unique to the sitter. So there seems to be a fundamental incompatibility between the purpose of the portrait, which is to render the specificity of the sitter, and the goals of an artist like Matisse to abstract, to simplify, 
to reduce to the essentials and to render the entirety of the canvas as an expressive whole. But I think it's the challenge of remaking the portrait genre, working in the rift between those two poles, is why Matisse was attracted to portraiture his entire life. And especially in periods during the teens, when his art is really at his most technically experimental, the period of the Pedahan portrait. So portraits were not just a quarrel for him, but an intense, intense sight of contestation between the resemblance of the person in front of him and what Matisse understood to be the more lasting, more essential character of the person he was representing. As he often liked to say, repeating Rembrandt's famous maxim, I have never painted anything but portraits. And in rough patches, Matisse recalled he often clung to Rembrandt's true and profound saying for moral support. So Matisse undertook this process of scrutiny on himself several times as well. Here he is uh, in January 1918, during his very first winter in Nice. Uh, he's sitting next to an earlier state of one of his self-portraits uh, from the teens, a self-portrait that is now in the Matisse Museum in Cato. But the lesser known portrait that I'd like to call your attention to um, is the one just behind his elbow there. Uh, it's a very small uh, panel of wood, it's about 14 by eight centimeters. Um, it's almost a hand-sized image uh, of the person, interestingly enough, who took this photograph, a man by the name of Georges Besson. And Besson was an art critic. He had recently brought Matisse to um, meet the elder impressionist Renoir uh, at his villa nearby Cannes-sur-Mer on Matisse's birthday. It's kind of a birthday present, I guess. Just a month before uh, taking this photo in Matisse's hotel room. This smaller, very somber portrait, it's almost the size of a photograph, which is another portrait medium I think Matisse is thinking of, was done in the hotel room over the course of about 14 sessions. The rendering, of course, is anything but photographic. Um, Besson's forehead kind of looms towards us, his tinier body recedes. It's almost a kind of caricatural image of the cerebral energy that Matisse associated Georges uh, Besson with is the kind of essence of his model. To explain this work to Besson, Matisse told him, I'd like this portrait to, resembles, to resemble your ancestors and your descendants. What could have Matisse meant by that? The fact that he uses the word resemble is interesting because we have so many other instances of Matisse talking about the limitations of resemblance. A resemblance has a kind of trap for an artist. I think it's significant that when Matisse made those remarks to Besson in 1918, we know that he had at least 20 pieces of West and Central African art in his collection, a collection that was steadily growing since his first purchase in late 1906. Soon after, Matisse is going to make consistent use of these objects, borrowing ideas from them to critically examine and expand the boundaries of French art. Now, several of the African sculptures he owned, depending on their use and context, represent the conceptual form of an ancestor, the incarnation of a specific ancestor or the whole line of one's ancestry. And many of those sculptures Matisse collected were also masks. So these are two pende masks, both from the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, as they are installed in our show, both from Matisse's personal collection. Interestingly enough, one of these pende masks was included in um, a kind of landmark show that happened in 1984 called Primitivism and Modern Art at MoMA in New York, which took as its point of inquiry 
um, this really complex question of how uh, Western modern art um, was shaped by an encounter with African and other non-European art forms. It was a uh, large ambitious show that also was roundly criticized for having a kind of tone of uncritical celebration of Western appropriation. And interestingly enough, when we were sort of planning this uh, exhibition here, um, it occurred to me that some of the curatorial hesitation that we um, have had in the last couple of years of sort of combining European art with non-European art in the same gallery is a legacy of, of, of the reactions to that show. The first thing you might notice um, is some of the sort of graphic or kind of morphological similarity to uh, the small uh, Besson portrait we just saw. Um, the projection of the head, for example, the emphasis, the sort of graphic emphasis on the brow. Um, but we really wanted to suggest in the show that uh, African art was much more than just a stylistic resource for Matisse. So in this gallery, we wanted to uh, gesture to other relationships besides just um, visual parallels, sort of more conceptual borrowings about the nature and, and very goal of representation. So for example, um, Matisse's friend and fellow fauve, uh, André Durand, um, wrote to him in 1906 here from London about seeing masks at the British Museum at the V&A. Um, and he uh, admired those traditions because, as he said in this letter to Matisse, expression was not located or illustrated in the object itself, but rather came from its means of making, its color, its form, its textures, its materials. One of Matisse's main lessons from objects like these two pende masks was that a deeper, much broader range of expression could be achieved when an artist was not limited to illustrating a particular emotion in the face. So Matisse, like a lot of European artists who are collecting in the early 20th century, seemed to have um, not a very clear sense of the original meanings of the objects. Um, how they were used by their original makers. And often the objects uh, like these would, you know, would have been removed from their original context without any documentation. So Matisse's recorded remarks about African art are mostly aesthetic observations, having to do with what he admired, um, what he referred to as the invented planes and proportions of African sculpture. You know, the fact that many of these traditions did not take naturalism or anatomy at its point of departure. I do think, however, that he might have had a general understanding of the deeply spiritual function of many of the objects in his collection. The fact that they were profoundly tied to the lives of their makers and their users in a way that European artists thought to emulate. So these two pende masks um, are actually worn by young male initiates in dancing masquerades. Their cap masks mean that they're worn on the top of the head. And they are meant to represent, um, with their beards sort of emphasized by the raffia ruffs, uh, the authority of uh, the ancestors in one's community. So when a dance is performed, um, the positive forces of those ancestors are then uh, spread to the community. Knowing how they are used is actually very important, obviously, to um, appreciating why they look the way they do. Um, they're not meant to be, uh, you know, static, right? These things are, are meant to be um, originally viewed in motion. Um, so it's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, you have these really strong sculptural shapes like the jutting forehead, you know, these strongly chiseled features, um, which allows the mask to be seen 
um, at a distance during this performance. Another uh, African object we have in the show is this Kuba mask from the Congo. Um, it personifies another kind of ancestor, um, the historic Mubudi populations who uh, lived in this area and provided knowledge and lore to the current residents. Um, by the way, this was a mask that uh, Matisse most likely acquired uh, after an auction of his friend Vlaminck's collection in 1937. Another thing that we wanted to emphasize in the show that was that these are not necessarily direct sources in, in a sense then, because if Matisse is you know, acquiring this in 1937, he would often acquire African objects well late into his life that had a kind of um, you know, backwards uh, relationship to works that he had already done. So this sort of one-to-one -one source and, and, and inspiration is much more complex um, than we might think. So right around the time that Matisse began uh, collecting African art in late 1906, he uh, makes this uh, very radically simplified portrait of his young daughter, Marguerite, um, who's about 12 years old. So in the Faces Gallery, it hangs next to a later very small uh, portrait of her. She's about 23 years old in the, in the painting on the left. And the earlier portrait is um, really remarkably startling in how simplistic it is. Um, but if you look at it more closely, um, of course, that simplicity is, is sort of misleading um, because in a kind of a remarkable conflict of dimensionality, the flatness of her body here in the blue smock um, tends to sort of give way to a, a much more three-dimensional um, suggestion of her head. But it's, it's, it's kind of difficult to see where that three-dimensionality begins. Um, and I think it's probably one of the reasons why Picasso picked it for his own collection because in his cubist experimentations that are just a few years ahead, um, he's going to focus on this theme, how to create dimensionality without resorting to sort of traditional methods of modeling. To emphasize the faux naivete of the portrait, Matisse wrote in his daughter's name with a very childlike script on top. You get a sense of the sort of quickness of that stroke uh, in this detail. It's kind of almost an ironic take on the uh, artist's signature. You can also see in this close-up the thick black line around the whole image, which tends to emphasize not only the image's flatness, but also its constructed nature. So a little while later, in the fall of 1907, when Picasso and, and Matisse agree to uh, exchange works of art with one another to solidify their uh, artistic uh, friendship, um, Picasso chose this portrait of Marguerite. And as we can see in the photo on the left, he placed it on his studio wall um, near an African mask in his own collection that we also have on the show by a Punu artist from Gabon. And it really suggests that Picasso saw um, a very meaningful connection between Matisse's radically simplified portrait and the African objects that uh, both artists were borrowing from at the time in very different ways. In a later portrait, um, Matisse presents Marguerite as uh, a bold, kind of self-possessed sitter. Um, as we see in this uh, family photograph of Marguerite, she's dressed up for one of her father's works, um, standing in front of one of those North African uh, textile hangings, a Haiti, that were uh, always in his niece's studio. You really get a sense of what a good sport she is. Uh, she was a dedicated studio assistant really throughout her life. Uh, her father kind of came to depend on the sort of steadfast uh, constancy of her vision or criticism. And in the small portrait from the Met, 
he applies these kind of liquid touches of paint um, beneath her eye that kind of bring that gaze uh, to life. As he explained in his 1908 essay, Notes of a Painter, I discover amid the lines of the face those which suggest the deep gravity that persists in every human being. So despite the small scale of the image again, this one is about 19, time, 19 by 18, her targeted gaze makes the image feel a lot bigger. This was, by the way, one of the things that Matisse admired in many supposedly primitive traditions, the ability of an object to present a larger sense of scale, even in modest proportions. So for example, um, another object that we have in this gallery, uh, I think it's one of the reasons he admired this uh, crown Buddha, uh, mostly from, probably from Thailand, um, because the impression of monumentality that it has is unrelated to how big it is. Um, it's almost as if uh, this small fragment was kind of made um, for the scale of the hand, made to be touched, but there's also a kind of distance in it as if it were made to be seen, you know, like a large monument from far away. Um, and this kind of contest of modes, uh, the intimacy and the distance is something that I think you see a lot in Matisse's sculpture. So the deep gravity that he was after, by the way, I think is one of the reasons why so many of Matisse's images of his female sitters, despite whether you think they're beautiful or flattering or not, are unarguably fully present. However, they do bring up one central question about Matisse's portraits. Do his expressive simplifications, his habit of absorbing resemblance in order to increasingly do away with it, push the individual subjectivity of his sitters to the side? Or do they actually end up expanding on it in ways that might be less immediately visible? I think the question can be approached via a very important series of sculptures, the Jeanette heads. Now there's some disagreement about whether this series was modeled over a period of three years, 1910 to 1913, or six. But there's little disagreement that the Jeanette heads are one of really Matisse's greatest achievements in sculpture. It's also a series that offers really keen insight into how portraiture in particular was key to the development of his abstraction during these years. So the photograph you're looking at now is, um, shows an installation of all five of the heads uh, at MoMA in New York. Here at the RA, we have three of the heads, and those casts come from the Hirshhorn in DC. The photos I'm going to be showing you are of um, different casts. But the first thing you'll probably notice is that the five Jeanette heads grow increasingly abstract over time. But in a way, I think, that does not display an indifference to the model's character, but a kind of thorough understanding that subjectivity is rarely what's apparent to ourselves or to others. So the first sculpture from 1910 um, is a far more uh, naturalistic rendering of the model than its counterpart in painting. The model for the series and for the painting at left um, was a young woman named Jean Vaderin. Here's a photo of Jean Vaderin. Uh, Matisse's wife, Amélie, later uh, reported that Jean Vaderin was staying with the family in their home in ici les moulineaux suburb of Paris, while she was recuperating from uh, an illness and posing for the artist uh, in her spare time. So with this insight, it's sort of tempting to read the painting at left um, as a kind of uh, poetic image of Jean sort of emerging from the physical limitations 
of her frail, if elegant, body, just as the tulips beneath her, painted in the same rosy hues of her now healthy cheeks, emerge from their buds. There's something quite melancholic about the painting, but it's also very suggestive of potential energy. In the preparatory charcoal drawing for the painting, um, Jean looks a lot more vigorous, and it's a good thing, too, because she had to uh, withstand an intense amount of reworking uh, in this charcoal. If you look closely at the face, uh, for example, you'll see the traces of previous placements still visible in the sort of rubbed-out charcoal. Now, although the drawing is often more associated with the painting that I just showed you, um, it's also very uh, significant to the sculpture series because working and reworking Jean Vadin's face allowed Matisse to narrow in on her most characteristic physical features, her long, kind of prominent nose and asymmetrical eyes. And those are the two elements that are going to be a constant focus for him throughout the sculpture series. And as we will see, the very mask-like kind of triangular form in the upper left of the page, with its sort of schematic rendering of those same eyes and nose, is also a sign of things to come. Now, the first two heads in the series are admittedly not wildly interesting on their own. Both of them are modeled while Jean Vadarin is uh, present in the EC uh, home studio in the early months of 1910. Uh, Jeanette II, on the right side of the screen, was lightly begun from a cast of the first, uh, as both a time-saving device and because Matisse liked to work in series using a previous idea as a kind of fresh point of departure for the next. In removing the neck and slicing away at the back end of uh, Jeanette One's hair, Matisse transformed the second sculpture into a head with the outward shape of a mask. And in fact, in his casting notes, he referred to Jeanette Two as Jeanette Mask. Beginning with the third head, things start to get a little bit more interesting. We now see a three-part sculpture emerge. Instead of a head or mask placed on a base, Matisse sculpts one continuous head, breastplate, and stand, a kind of triad of forms that mirrors the ballooning volumes of Jeanette's hair. That motif of the blooming tulip from the drawing and painting now has been absorbed into the vertical structure of the sculpture, since you might compare it to a kind of rising plant bursting into a crown of petals at top. The metaphor is particularly striking in the back view of Jeanette Three at the center of the screen. But in the profile view of the sculpture, the impression is much more angular and less organic. Unlike in the first two heads, the chin does not come to a kind of uh, fleshy, rounded end. It's abruptly flattened, as if Matisse has kind of ran a spatula from the throat forward. And he does this to a kind of align the lower contour of the chin with the contour of the hair, so that the entire head is sort of inscribed within a triangle, from which the triangle of the nose emerges. Matisse is always thinking about these relationships between shapes. Jean's features have been so transformed here that Matisse likely began number three with an entirely fresh mound of clay. And his imagination is given more freedom because he's working from memory, because he's working from representations of Jean rather than Jean herself. So in the next head, seen in profile uh, at the right, um, one has the impression that Matisse is modeling a kind of three-dimensional caricature of his own work, 
it's almost like a send-up of Jeanette three on the left. Matisse, I think, would have probably made a great cartoonist. Um, for example, look at these sort of witty line drawings he does uh, of the two sculptures in his casting notebook, which is where Matisse and his heirs kept track of you know, how many casts were made and when. Um, many of the elements from the earlier head, oops, excuse me, are taken to a kind of exaggerated extreme, right? The hair is sort of pumped up into these cartoon-like blobs. Um, the strong nose is now really kind of an outrageous beak. Um, the slightly downturned lips, which contribute to Jeanette III's uh, mood of uh, solemnity, are removed entirely. In one of the sculpture's more kind of macabre touches, uh, Matisse facets the area between where the lips are supposed to be, which seemed to suggest a kind of partial set of teeth, almost bared in a grimace. And in place of open eyes, we now have a pair of projecting uh, lids, these kind of hoods that are sort of pinched out from the surface of the clay that create dark shadows underneath. And some of you might recall that treatment of the hooded lids creating eyes that seem to be both ambiguously open and closed as one of the shared features from Matisse's Pende masks we saw earlier. Jeanette Four is by far the strangest of all five of the heads. Uh, it doesn't emulate, like Jeanette Two did, the outer form of a mask, but it does reflect a mask's function in many different cultural traditions, which is to bring together what is simultaneously comic and fearsome. So while painting all of these, uh, excuse me, while sculpting all of these heads, he's of course continuing to paint and painting portraits as well. Um, he worked on these two Jeanette heads around the same time as this portrait of Olga Mirson, uh, which we have in the show. Uh, Olga Mirson was a, a Russian Jewish emigre who had studied with Kandinsky in Munich before coming to France to study with Matisse. Um, and there's a real back and forth between sculpture and painting throughout Matisse's career, but especially during this period. It's maybe another kind of productive quarrel in his work because these two media speak in such different languages. In the painting, um, Matisse is really leaving all of the traces of his efforts as he works through the placement of Olga Mirson's body. You know, you'll notice that he leaves visible um, an earlier placement of her forearm. So there's a lot of quite rich, direct parallels between um, the signs of making in Matisse's portrait, sort of scratches and overpainting in the face, for example, with all of the cutting and subtractive methods he's using for uh, the sculptures. In both, you know, he's scraping away a lot of materials and working with this idea of, of layering as a, as, an, as, a, as a way to get at a true essence. It is as if in the painting, Matisse leaves us a kind of open record of the intense reconsideration involved in returning to a sitter at multiple moments during multiple sessions. He himself said that he painted a new portrait every time he started a new session. And those two curving, bold black marks, um, with that insight, is read as a sort of an attempt to fix the subject um, and the sort of complex back and forth between artist and sitter that is essentially in flux. So in this one canvas, you have a kind of succession of states that's also the theme of the Jeanette heads. So the following year, um, Matisse is going to begin on a portrait of another Russian, uh, his primary patron, Shukin. The project never got further than this uh, remarkable charcoal sketch. 
Um, the intense study, once again, points us to Matisse's continual reliance on ideas outside of the European tradition of portraiture. Um, the Shukin drawing has several kind of uh, stylistic parallels with a Galede mask from Matisse's collection also on view in the Faces Gallery. His focus on the intensity of his uh, Russian patron's very dark, kind of piercing eyes, um, which of course is the perceptive gaze that at the moment Matisse's livelihood relies on, um, echoes how facial features are used as a kind of symbolic language in African traditions. The name Galede, um, or female power, uh, derives from the name of a secret society of, of Yoruba origin, uh, people in West Africa, sort of scattered between southern Nigeria and southern Benin. Um, masks of the type that we have in the show, um, this is a living tradition, right? Uh, they're still used and worn um, in masquerades like the one that I'm showing you on the screen now. A typical Galede festival uh, is celebrated to uh, acknowledge the contributions of women. And during the celebration, some of the male maskers uh, dress as women in, in a, sort of an attempt to identify with motherhood. Other Galede masquerades are um, performed with masks like this to placate uh, ancestors, to encourage their generosity. So the one in Matisse's collection that comes to us from a private collection was originally uh, painted, most likely. Uh, and that part that emerges from the top of the head um, was most likely used to attach another uh, decorative element during the da dancing masquerade, as you can see in the, how that would work in the recent photo. Um, and speaking of this kind of symbolic language of features, the ears, the prominent ears in a Galede mask, um, reflect the sort of association with sound perception, right, with the masker is, is, is dancing. Um, and uh, when the mask is in motion, you have these sort of bulging eyes that appear to be kind of engaged in a trance, but are also very cognizant of the audience around the performer. Matisse's own focus on facial features as a kind of highly symbolic language would really help him to complete the Jeanette series um, with his final, most strikingly abstract head. So for the fifth and final head in the series, um, which you are looking at on the right, Matisse began with a cast of Jeanette three. So it's not really a satire of the third head, but an extreme makeover of it. Um, he starts by giving Jean a haircut. As you will notice, the sort of central round volume um, of hair in Jeanette three does not really disappear in Jeanette five. Rather, Matisse sort of pulls it down into the structure of the skull itself. Um, and so now you have this form that's kind of continuous with that long nose, um, a nose made even more kind of severe and straight by the fact that he's removed one of the nostrils. Um, so that female hair, a sign for female hair, is fetishistically displaced onto a rather masculine phallic form that really defines her central head. That masculine motif is repeated again in the back view of the sculpture, um, which might read as a kind of uh, stamen for Jeanette III's blooming flower. It abruptly announces something that really has been happening since Jeanette III, 
which is the invasion of kind of masculine traits into a traditionally feminine form. Now, I don't mean to suggest that Matisse is actually making Jeanette into a literal man. That's not what he's up to in the sculpture. But I think one of the larger themes of the series is how the signs we associate with masculine and feminine are not as securely gendered as we might think. And that, by extension, the categories we use to define subjectivity might be open to a more fun and dynamic play of the imagination. In any case, it seems to be ahead undergoing analysis for sure. Jeanette is no longer uh, solemn, she's no longer comic, but she is very psychologically exposed. And this was perhaps the most fundamental lesson I think Matisse took from masks, since they were created to transform the identity of the, wear of the wearer in order to make something uh, visible that was otherwise uh, unseen or an unaccessible. So in the final head, a single form has been replaced by this complex relationships of interlocking shapes. The model Jean Vadarin is really, we've come such a far away from that photograph that we saw of her. Um, but I think Matisse has uh, successfully replaced the signs of physical likeness with this intense presence. And it's precisely that goal that we see in the related Italian woman of 1916. The model, uh, the Italian model Lorette, um, really seems to be wearing a mask, literally, since the heavy uh, dark shadows under her chin separate the face uh, from the rest of the body. She seems to be sort of floating in a plane that comes closer to us. And that uh, long tress of, of hair um, is really the only element bringing those uh, segmented uh, parts back together. Um, but one of the most, most sort of, sort of remar remarkable and I think sort of kind of deeply spiritual aspect of this uh, work is that, you know, the, the end of her hair also uh, forms the end of, of a kind of cloak that seems to wrap around her body as if she's sort of emerging um, from the space of the painting itself. Now, the very last text Matisse wrote before he died, um, it was published in 1954, was very significantly um, devoted to the subject of portraiture. So in this text, he argued that the portrait, even in the age of modern photography, remains an inexhaustible source of interest for a modern artist. But at the beginning of the introduction, Matisse opposes two ideas. He opposes anthropometry, a sort of scientific pursuit based on rational systems of measurement, to the more supernatural practice of divination, the ritual of kind of seeking divine guidance. So this is Matisse. One might think that the photographic portrait is adequate. For anthropometry, yes, but for an artist who seeks the true character of the face, it is otherwise. Recording the model's features reveals feelings often unknown, even to the very diviner who has brought them to light. Now, in opposing anthropometry to divination, Matisse reminds us of the limitations of analyzing physical form as a means to analyze character. Now, anthropometry is a branch of physical anthropology. 
It focuses on um, measuring living uh, human individuals for the purposes of understanding physical variations. Most notably, uh, anthropometry was used by a Frenchman by the name of Alphonse Bertillon in the late 19th century and was subsequently adopted by the French state, seeking to um, primarily identify repeat criminal offenders. So the perceived value in Bertillon's very uh, you know, logic-driven system was its ability to fix the specificities of physical difference in, in, in sort of absolute terms. And portraiture, uh, specifically photographic portraiture, was used as, 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 as data, as, as the way to do this. Um, its application points to a kind of overvaluing, I think, of the specificity of the individual used to track, define, and some most egregious applications really dehumanize the actual individual, individuals it attempts to study. Matisse's approach to portraiture clearly does not have this practical goal in mind. And in fact, in many ways, it's a robust criticism of it. Matisse himself believed that a model's character might be revealed gradually over a course of several sittings. But his reference to divination suggests that the process was fundamentally intuitive, that it was not really an assertion of his own kind of conscious will by which he would ultimately discover the truth of his model. And I find this reflected in the fact that in Jeanette and in many Matisse's portraits series, every time he works in a series, the series is not a progression or a neat path because he rarely applied a set formula or solution to a project before he starts working on it. He tries to use his art in order to learn something that he didn't know before he started it. Just as many of the African objects in his collection were used as instruments to divine, to tap into something unseen and unknown. So why don't we end with another choral? There is an oft-told story of Matisse's uh, very patient wife, Amélie, who was moved to tears at the sight of her own effigy in this uh, remarkable 1913 portrait of her. It's the last work um, for which Amélie uh, would model for her husband. It is uh, extremely evocative of that Punu mask that we saw earlier that hung next to the portrait of Marguerite in Picasso's studio. Um, significantly, in 1913, uh, Matisse had just rekindled his uh, relationship with Picasso. He's been seeing a lot of him around this time. Um, and so there is a, several references in the, in the portrait. I think one is also to, again, their shared interest in using uh, non-European art and their shared rivalry about that. Um, the mm, connection to masks was uh, an affiliation immediately recognized by a writer of fr and friend of, of Picasso, a man by the name of André Salmon, who uh, in 1913 described this portrait as a woman in blue wearing a wooden mask, smeared with chalk, a figure from out of a nightmare. For the Punu mask maker, however, this mask tradition had nothing to do with nightmares. The mask maker's goal was to capture the likeness of the most idealized, most beautiful woman in the village, 
and the white callum, which is taken from um, riverbeds, was associated with healing and with an ancestral realm of existence. That white was applied to the surface of the face to make them even more beautiful. And interestingly enough, once again, it was men who wore these female masks. Beauty is clearly in the eye of the beholder. I don't find the work to be particularly nightmarish, despite what someone said in 1913. In fact, I find its lack of sentimentality is what makes the feeling of it even more intense. The portrait expresses no specific mood but rather a whole gamut, a whole range of possible emotions, a whole gamut of possible uh, relations uh, for, for, for us to relate to Amélie. The tilt of Amélie's head, sporting a kind of uh, dainty ostrich feather toque, um, I think is one of the portrait's more tender details. The toque she wears is a tribute to her role in the shared creative endeavor that was their marriage. Um, Amélie had worked as a milliner in the early years to support the family so that Matisse could paint. She had to give it up in 1903 because of poor health. Um, soon after she gave it up, the winter um, was coming. The uh, family had to go back to uh, Matisse's family in Bois since they didn't have any money to get through the winter. Um, that was 1903. By 1913, when this uh, portrait was done, the family had achieved a kind of level of, of, of financial stability um, that made this uh, experimental pursuit possible. So the fact that irresolvable conflicts lie at the core of our subjectivity, our attempts to know one another, was captured um, in a remark that Matisse made uh, in a letter to Amélie many, many years later. He referred to this painting as, quote, the one that made you cry but in which you look so pretty. So I'm gonna end there. Um, I uh, am more than happy to uh, take a couple questions. I think we have time for a couple questions, Sarah. Um, questions about anything we've looked at or anything else on the show? In the portrait of um, Olga Renson, you've referenced um, African sculpture, the beards, and you've referenced um, structural marks. Um, but at first viewing, um, I saw this as extremely destructive. I thought the black marks were actually sitting on the surface and had been added at the end of the painting, which would appear very destructive. Maybe you can comment on that. Yeah, I mean, the act of portraiture for Matisse is, is, is not without aggression. I don't, I mean, it's a... It's a struggle, it's a quarrel. He himself says that, right? He has a very intense relationship with Olga Mearson, which I think is conveyed visually in the work. I mean, those black lines are like, like I, th I always sort of read them as, as, as a sort of an attempt to, to sort of fix her subjectivity, if you will, but you know, an attempt that maybe is not working either. Okay, well, join me in thanking Ellen McBreen for this fantastic talk today. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.